Now we made note when we considered the previous passage some weeks ago that the structure of the passage, this chapter, is intended to direct your attention, the reader's attention, to verses 29 and 30, which say, And the king swore, saying, As Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. We saw that the way that, that the author structured the chapter, the way that he used language, the Hebrew language originally, translated into the, to the English for us to read today, the way that he used language, he structured it in such a way as if to put a spotlight on those two verses to show that they are the two most important verses of the entire chapter. And you'll remember that David said those words to Bathsheba, and after he said those words, assuring her that he did indeed remember his promise to her, he very quickly uh, set about the work of keeping his promise. Remember the beginning of 1 Kings, the opening verses of chapter 1. David is lying in bed, he's enfeebled, he can't do anything. They have to bring to him a young woman who uh, essentially becomes his wife to keep him warm. He is so cold in bed, he is near death it would appear. And of course, that is uh, what emboldens Adonijah to take the steps that he takes. Adonijah wants to be king. King David is weak. He's lying on his deathbed, it appears. Adonijah seizes the moment. But now David springs into action. Uh, Adonijah, he thought he was just setting himself up in opposition to his father, David. He thought he was setting himself up in his opposition to his brother, Solomon. But in reality, Adonijah is setting himself up in opposition to the Lord God. And he cannot prevail against the Lord God. He was seeking to thwart God's plan, whether he realized it or not, and no good was going to come from that. God thwarted Adonijah, but God did not crush Adonijah. Instead, through Solomon, God showed mercy. I would ask you to consider this thought as we work our way through the passage this morning. The, Lord, the Lord's king sits on the throne and even his enemies pay homage to him. The Lord's king sits on the throne, and even his enemies pay homage to him. The sermon's divided into three parts. The first, Jonathan's report. The second, God has given. And the third, a desperate plea. Again, Jonathan's report, that's the first part of the sermon. God has given is the second, and a desperate plea is the third. So let's uh, consider now uh, for a few moments Jonathan's report. In the first half of the chapter, Nathan, the prophet, brings news to Bathsheba of Adonijah's attempt at setting himself up as king. And Nathan instructs Bathsheba to go and tell King David. That's what set all of uh, this activity on David's part into motion. Now in our passage, it is Abiathar's son, Jonathan, Yahnathan, whose name means Yahweh has given who brings the news to Adonijah and his entourage that King David has crowned Solomon as king. Now, interestingly, in verse 48, Jonathan reports that David said, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has granted, literally in Hebrew, given someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. So Jonathan is telling Adonijah that God has done what his name attests. God has given Israel a new king. But we need to back up a little bit. We got ahead of ourselves. This isn't what Adonijah and those feasting with him were hoping to hear when Joab asked what all of the commotion was in the city. 
The immediately preceding passage to our sermon passage this morning, it it contains uh, the, the, the occasion of Solomon being anointed down at the springs of Gehon. And after he's been anointed, he sits on the mule, the royal mule, indicating that he is indeed the king. He makes his way back into the city, and all of this great commotion springs up around him. And the city is in an uproar, a joyous uproar over what is happening. Now, if you look to the previous passage, David gets down to business quite swiftly as soon as he's told what Adonijah has been up to. It's as if a spell has been lifted and David is suddenly able to, do, uh, to move for the first time in ages. <coughs> Meanwhile, we have Adonijah, who thinks that he has locked up his position on the throne. He thinks that it is his since his old man is on his deathbed. And so Adonijah is partying hard while his formerly enfeebled father is ensuring Solomon's succession to the throne. In our passage now, Adonijah's celebration ends as soon as Jonathan begins to give the good news. So Jonathan answers in verse 43, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. I want to stop here for a moment and consider the way in which Jonathan, this young man, the son of Abiathar, the priest, one of the priests in that day, the way he speaks about David. The way that he does it makes it clear in this and following verses that though he had been working with Adonijah, his ultimate loyalty remained with King David. It seems that David's inaction with regard to Adonijah had led Jonathan and others to believe that David had sanctioned what Adonijah was doing. And so one commentator writes about this, at the first sign of disapproval voiced by David, their motivations for supporting Adonijah vanish like snow under a hot sun. Misled by the combination of Adonijah's bravado and David's silence, they accept the old monarch's authority as soon as he asserts it. As soon as David makes known the fact that Adonijah is not the successor to the throne, those loyal to David who had fallen in with Adonijah They fall away. Jonathan continues in verses 44 and following, telling Adonijah that Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah, and the Carathites and the Pelathites, they all accompanied Solomon as he rode on the king's mule uh, down to the springs of Gehon, where Nathan anointed him king. And after he'd been anointed, he began to go back up to Jerusalem, and everyone with Solomon shouted and rejoiced, which led to the whole city uh, erupting in joyous uproar. And that was what Adonijah and those with him heard. Now, Jonathan, as we've said, I think it's safe to assume, it's safe to believe, it's safe to interpret that Jonathan, his loyalty is with David. And yet he got caught up with a usurper. We might say that he strayed. He strayed from following the true king for a time. He had reason to do so. Adonijah was was posing as uh, the heir to the throne. David's silence uh, gave sanction to that. He was quiet, but Jonathan erred. He strayed. This is something that followers of the Lord do from time to time. We get led astray. We err. But the Lord brought him back. As soon as David began to speak, as soon as David began to take action, Jonathan knows who it is that he follows. Now King Solomon sits on the royal throne. 
But Jonathan continues in verse 47, saying, Moreover, the king's servants came over to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And that phrase, that repeated uh, use of the phrase, our Lord King David, it's a sure indication of where Jonathan's loyalties truly lie. He'd been led astray by Adonijah's falsehoods, but it is clear whose camp he's in. And that brings us to the next section of the sermon, God has given. Now, verse 47 may be an indication that though David had, had a burst of energy, he was still pretty weak. We read at the end of that verse that the king bowed himself on his bed. It, it may even be the case that all of the action, all of the activity, the direction that David was giving was from his bed. It was clear that he didn't join Solomon and the others when Solomon was anointed king by Nathan, but it appears that perhaps David hadn't left his bed at all during the events described so far in this chapter. And if that's the case, it seems even more remarkable that he still bows before the Lord to acknowledge what God had done, even if he can't leave his bed to do so. Now, many of us are feeling the effects of old age, even at the ripe young age of 51, where I find myself. Many of us, because of injuries when we were younger, playing sports, doing various things, we, we wake up in the morning and we just can barely move. Many of us are very quick to make excuses for ourselves in our reluctance, perhaps, uh, allowing it to slip our minds how we ought to come before the Lord in prayer, showing gratitude to him for what we have done. But David here, he... He really takes away all of the excuses that we can come up with. He doesn't get out of his bed, but he bows before the Lord. He prostrates himself before the Lord to give thanks to God for what he has done. He does so because it, has, it is God who has ensured Solomon's succession to the throne. And this is what he says in verse 48. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Now, though, though, though this was the first time in Israel's history that a son succeeded his father as king, David understood that ordinarily it would be upon the father's death. It was a rare thing for a king to undergo a peaceful transfer of power to his own son while he was still living. Now, some of you may remember five, ten years ago, there was uh, started to be some rumors coming out of England that, that Queen Elizabeth was going to just give the throne over to Prince Charles. Prince Charles was, was getting restless. Here he was in his 60s, getting older. When is he ever going to become king? And there were rumors kicking around that, that perhaps Queen Elizabeth was going to abdicate. She was going to give up the throne and allow her son to do so. Queen Elizabeth was probably wise beyond her years in remaining queen for as long as she did until the day she died. That's ordinarily the way it works. But David is rejoicing at the fact that he gets to see his son Solomon sit on the throne. And he gives thanks to the Lord for that. He thanks God. It was a blessing. And David understands it was a blessing for God to allow David to see a partial fulfillment of God's promise to David so many years before. And though Solomon wasn't the forever king who was foretold to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David understands that Solomon is one step closer 
to the forever king than David was. Now we just celebrated the birth of Jesus a couple of weeks ago. But for so many, this has been a season of great joy as we remember that we remember that the Son of God became man by being born as a little baby. David, in the coronation of his son, beheld God's down payment, the first installment on God's promise to establish the throne of David forever. Now, you don't have to raise your hand here. This is a rhetorical question, but get you thinking about it. how many of you growing up, or, or even in your adulthood, you put something away on layaway? How many of you know what that means? So probably those of you below a certain generation, you don't have any concept of what having something on layaway is. Even though I think in recent years, during recessions, talk of layaways, uh, uh, laying something away uh, comes back up. I can remember my parents putting something, I don't remember exactly what it was, some toy or other for me, uh, putting uh, it on layaway for Christmas when I was a kid. You see, back in the old days, credit wasn't as easily obtained as it is now. If you're 15 years old, not to give you any ideas, you could probably take out a credit card and have a line of credit and get yourself quickly, seriously in debt. Don't do it. (laughs) But you could. So if you didn't have the money back then, you didn't have the money on hand to buy something, you wouldn't necessarily have a credit card to buy it with, you would put the thing on layaway, which meant you would go to a store, you would pick something out, you'd take it back to a, a counter, and you'd say, I want to put this on layaway. You'd put a down payment on it, and they would store it for you. They would put it in a special place with your name on it. Nobody else could have it, and you would go in and make regular installments, regular payments of this thing until it was paid off. And then when it's paid off, you get to take it home, and it's yours. Now, Don't push this analogy too far. It will break down when we're talking about what God is doing here. Don't push it too far. Push analogies too far, you end up being a heretic. Don't do it. But this at least points something out to us. It shows us that that David is seeing that first payment of the promise that he made, that God made to David. When David sees his son Solomon sitting on the throne, making decisions, ruling in his place... He can trust that the rest of that promise is going to be fulfilled, that there will be a forever king who will come and sit on the throne. And so David can say, God has granted, God has given me this day someone to sit on the throne. Solomon being anointed and crowned as king is God's first installment, his first payment on that promise. And God made every payment on time. He kept all of his promises. Now the passage from Isaiah 45, it's one of God's many reminders along the way to his people that he remembers his promise and he's in the process of keeping it. Isaiah's written not exactly at the midway point between the time of David and the coming of Jesus Christ, but it's around the middle part of that. God reminds his people through the, through the prophet Isaiah in the book of Isaiah that he's going to keep his promises. He remembers his promise. He even elaborates on the promise. He gives more revelation about the promise. In this passage, God is reminding his people that salvation comes only from him. And he says there in several verses, but, but Israel is saved by Yahweh with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or, or confounded for all eternity. He says elsewhere in the passage, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue 
shall swear allegiance. And as the New Testament further reveals, it is the name of Jesus. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Paul's letter to the Philippian churches reveals that that will happen at Christ's second advent. On the day of judgment, when he returns in full glory, full power to judge the living and the dead. So God gave his word to David, and then God gave David a successor on his throne, Solomon. God gave us his word, and he gave us a savior, his only son, Jesus Christ. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon today, a desperate plea. As was mentioned earlier, the news Jonathan brought was not the news that Adonijah and the others were hoping to hear. So when Joab, this man who had fought for David, who'd fought alongside David, who carried out David's wishes, but who had deviated from what David wanted him to do, Joab is fully supporting Adonijah. Joab hears the ruckus, he hears the commotion, he wants to find out what all the noise is about. And so when it's, it's possible that when Joab asks this, he was hoping to be told that the people were celebrating Adonijah's becoming king. But when Jonathan gave his report, Adonijah's supporters, we read, trembled and rose, and each went his own way. The support dissolved. Even the brave and mighty Joab, his support for Adonijah dissolved. And Adonijah was thrown into a serious dilemma, the classic fight or flight. Adonijah quickly realized that fighting would not work out for him. Solomon enjoyed the support of King David, and from all the cheering he heard, it was clear that the people of Jerusalem were behind, were behind Solomon. Adonijah did not stand a chance leading a, a, a group of men to fight against uh, King Solomon. But flight was no good either. Running away would only cause Solomon and his army to chase after Adonijah, to chase him down. And so Adonijah threw himself at Solomon's feet by grabbing hold of the horns of the altar in the tabernacle of the Lord. He begged for mercy. Now, the altar was in the part of the tabernacle where the people were permitted to enter. You know, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. They could go in the outer court. And the tabernacle, or rather the altar, was the place upon which their sacrifices for atonement were laid. The top of the altar was square. It was seven and a half feet wide by seven and a half feet deep. It was a pretty large altar. Now, Adonijah would not have been permitted to enter the Holy of Holies where the mercy, mercy seat was. It was on the lid of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. And so the altar would have to be the place where Adonijah begged for mercy. And it appears that Adonijah actually lay on top of the altar. We read that he grabbed the horns of the altar, probably Perhaps just one of the horns so far apart. Maybe he grabbed one horn with his hands, one horn with his feet. And he said, let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And in Solomon's first act as king, he already shows the beginnings of the wisdom for which he would become famous. He responds to Adonijah's demand in verse 52. He says this, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. Now, I'm going to get, give away the ending here. If you've read into chapter 2, you know the rest of the story. Adonijah shows himself to be a wicked man. And he is put to death later on. But he is shown mercy here. 
Adonijah deserved to die instantly, immediately for what he had done. Solomon pardons him. He shows mercy to him. Now in the next chapter, we will see that, that Adonijah has not given up on his aspirations to become king. But at this point, his brother Solomon spares him. And it wasn't simply because he was holding on to the altar and Solomon didn't want the altar to be desecrated that he spared him. Because you see, Joab pulls the same stunt as Adonijah in chapter 2. And Joab is struck down by Benaiah at that altar. Solomon here is genuinely giving Adonijah a second chance. He showed to Adonijah unmerited, undeserved mercy. And so verse 53 says, So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. Solomon, in some ways, absolutely, he is a type of the Christ who was to come. Just as David was a type, Solomon is a type. But it's interesting that with Solomon, we get, we get in such rapid succession, we see the mercy that Christ Jesus displayed, the mercy that he, that he brought about at his first advent. Jesus Christ when he came 2,000 years ago, he effected the salvation of God's people by showing mercy, by giving, showing great compassion, care, love. Ultimately, he did so through his death on the cross, suffering the punishment that sinners like you and me deserve to suffer for our sins. In chapter 2, Solomon is a type of the second advent of Christ. When Christ comes again, and he will, brothers and sisters, he will, because God always fulfills the promises that he has made. Christ comes again a second time, and it will not be a time where mercy is shown. Jesus Christ will come, and when he does, it will be a day of judgment. We, too, either have been or we presently are on the horns of a dilemma when it comes to our relationship with the king of heaven. Like Adonijah, we are all guilty of trying to steal the throne of the true king. We are all usurpers at one point in our lives or another. If you, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't believe in him, then you want what God has. It's the original sin of Adam and Eve. Give me what you have or else. We want it, but it belongs only to God. All that is required of us so that we don't receive the punishment we deserve is to repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. These two things happen together concomitantly. Repent and believe. That's the gospel. You can't repent without having true faith in Jesus Christ. You can't have true faith in Jesus Christ without repenting. That's what's required. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God who sits on the throne forever, then you will be saved. You will be openly acknowledged on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment as a son or a daughter of the most high God. You will bow your knee and confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, not out of compulsion, not out of fear, but because you're rejoicing. You're delighting 
You're happy to see the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. But if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you, if you refuse to, to bend your knee to him, brothers and sisters, that doesn't mean that you no longer struggle with sin. And if you struggle with temptation, you struggle with sin, then you can't possibly be saved. That's not what it is. But if you're in open rebellion, refusing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, on the day when he returns, there will be no second chance, or no third chance, or no fourth chance. Today is the day. This is the hour. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the hope that we have. That is the opportunity that you are given now before the Lord King Jesus returns in judgment. On the day when he returns, those who believe in him, you will not be judged. You won't be. Jesus Christ already has been judged in your place. He has suffered the penalty due to you for your sins. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you will be judged. And you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth into the, the, the hell of hells. Well, you will suffer punishment for eternity for the sins that you've committed against the high king of heaven. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Let us pray.